Good to be with you today. And uh, I saw up there Dr. David Ferguson. I, I wish you could confer that on me right now and I could just be done with it. I'm in the middle of a PhD program and it's a little bit grueling, but it's good to be here with you today to worship together. Uh, if you look in your bulletin, you'll notice a title, To Be Young Again. And uh, you did mention I love speaking to young people and sharing with young people, working with college and high school young people and those just out of college. And then there are the rest of us, right? And uh, I suppose it would be uh, a fair thing for us to describe and define for ourselves what it means to be young. Uh, certainly the, the uh, chronologically young, that comes to mind, and we've had been blessed by such gifted young people here today so far. That's awesome. Uh, there are those of us, I would say, who just passed that young adult age, uh, but maybe we haven't been terribly involved in what God is doing, whether it be because we have uh, felt for one reason or another unqualified or that we just didn't have the right or for whatever reason we've been here among us and we've been in the pew, we've been ready to act, but we haven't done much yet and so we're relatively young in our spiritual actions possibly. And then there are also those that have newly committed themselves to Christ and they're they would be kind of spiritually young in age. And then there are the rest of us, right? And, and it, it's, it's quite possible that you, like me, really enjoy that phrase, young at heart, and so we'll trot that out pretty regularly. What I want to share with you is that for us to be young again uh, takes on some level us admitting that there are those of us who are not. And that's okay. And maybe that's the blessing of what we're about to share, is that I'm not young anymore, but God has a plan for me to engage in a very young, vibrant faith. I'd like to revisit Psalm 103 in the New International Version, those few verses 2 through 5. I'm going to read again. Again, that's the New International Version of Scripture. Whatever version you have with you, maybe you have it on a phone or an iPad or good old-fashioned leather and onion skin paper. So verse 2 of Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins. And we could just stop there, couldn't we? If the world knew about you, what you know about you, if the world knew about me, what I know about me, we could just stop there and have a sermon and possibly some quiet reflection. And the incredible depth of benefit that we receive right now by simply knowing my sins are forgiven. But it goes on. There's more to all of his benefits. And heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Have you had a week that was in the pit? Sometimes it can only take a, a momentary action, reaction, something happens, it's the vehicle, it's a boss that calls you in, it's a financial point of pressure, it's something you learn about one of your children or something they need that you can't provide, or it's a family member that has something tragic, a loved one in the midst of separation, it, all kinds of ways. That this week or last could have been a week in the pit. And for some of us, it's not just a day or a week, is it? For some of us, it's a, a season in the pit. And I tell you what, every once in a while I hear the story of some person who has had a life 
lived in a pit that I cannot understand and do everything I can to even just empathize a little bit, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Would you mind if we prayed one more time, if we invested in that request of the Holy Spirit that promises to be here with us as we dig through an age-old story you know well and I love as we spend our time in Scripture today. Bow your head with me. Father, thank you very much for these friends, new friends of mine, some that I've known for a little bit. Bless us with your presence. Invest in us your word. Grow us and maybe, maybe help us to be young again. In Jesus we pray. Amen. I must tell you, I love the way this is worded in the New International Version so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. One of the things I've always loved about working with young people is the fact that there's a game ready to break out at all times when when you're around young people. Uh, High school, as a chaplain, uh, frankly, every once in a while, after coming back from a gym night uh, playing basketball with a group of young men, somebody would look at me and say, man, I just really appreciate all the hard work you do with you. And I, of course, I love basketball, so it's okay, sure, yeah, all right. But I've noticed something over time, and it's been a few years I've been noticing this, something's going horribly wrong. Just terribly wrong in me. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Some of you are young enough. I know you haven't quite. But I I can remember exactly what I want to do on a basketball court. I know exactly what I'm hoping happens. But some, well, first of all, I believe I'm not a physician. Is there a physician in the room? Anybody in the medical field? Anybody close to anybody know a doctor? Okay, good. (laughs) I'm not certain that this is sound medical analysis or uh, physiological analysis, but I think pretty sure my lungs are shrinking. I'm not certain about it, but they just, I can't, I'll be running up and down the court, and I can't get the air that I used to be able to get, and, and as well, I, I be, there is a lactic acid buildup right now in preparation, just thinking, you know, I didn't really stretch before I came up the steps here. I could have pulled something. I'm not the same I used to be. I, I have found that running up and down the court playing basketball, I have a lot more moments that I have to act like something funny has happened, right? <laughs> because I'm gasping, my legs are tired. I must tell you, I am delighted by the way the New International Version of Scripture reads here. Verse 5, that second part. So that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. You know how I'm, I'm so glad it doesn't read this way, so that your youth are renewed. That'd be like the young lady who read about, uh, for the for offering that her youth, wait, she doesn't need her youth renewed. She is young. I'm the one who needs my youth, right? Some of you can even say amen. You can say it just in your, in your head if you need to. But yeah, I'm looking around and I see some people who are easily as old as I am. So that our youth is renewed, so that my youth might be renewed, yours as well, and maybe it's not just the lactic acid and shrinking lungs that I'm concerned about. Because I've been 
in this church now for quite some time. I grew up in it. I was born into a family with a pastor whose father and mother were missionaries. My mother's grandparents, grandfather was a pastor. In fact, I have something dear to me in my Bible cover. It's a, a, a tattered and a little bit torn, yellowed, cardboard stock piece of paper with printing on it, and then there's a name of a person, B.E. Miller, Benjamin E. Miller, who was a pastor in the Adventist church in the German work along the eastern seaboard, and it was, it's, this is a ticket, this is a ticket to an evangelistic series meeting, Jesus is coming. This ticket in this, it, it was handed out on the streets, I believe that one, on the streets of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, the idea being if you get a ticket, uh, you know, of course it's free to everybody to come, but if you get a ticket, maybe you feel like you're now entitled to something, you would come to this, he preached the soon return of Jesus Christ. That was my great-grandfather, B.E. Miller, long since dead, that I never met. I'm betting when he preached Jesus is coming, he didn't put it quite that way. Jesus is coming sometime long after I'm dead. Someday he'll come. In at least a few generations or more. I don't know, for those of us that have been coming to this church or another one like it who have loved Jesus for some time, are you at all tired? Does it exhaust you just a little bit to turn the news on? Do you wish our faith and what we observe as church could be vibrant? A movement, I believe, in a simple story that you have read, that we have told, and some of us have sung, I believe in this simple story found in 1 Samuel chapter 17, in this simple story, there is a recipe for us to be young again, a miraculous recipe, not just for our young people to be young, that we didn't need a recipe for but for me to be young again, to run and not grow weary, and maybe not even primarily physically, but on some spiritual level and maybe as a movement to be young again. So find your way to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and park there because we'll really just sit in this story. Those of you with good imaginations, walk with me if you don't mind. I don't know if he's on foot. That's the way I imagine it. He's in the darkness now leading a trail of donkeys. They are loaded down with goods, a variety of things. And as he makes his way, maybe along a creek which he cannot so much see as he can hear the sound of running water, he knows this pathway, this little road through the woods and along a plateau and out beyond the ravine and maybe passes by where the water now separates a little further and grows a little deeper. And at this point in the story, possibly the first shards, those little cracks in the sky as light starts to just purple up what used to be the darkest part of the day that some in the room may not even know about. And dawn begins to break colors come to life. Before the colors come, birds probably announced it. They were ready. 
And now you can see the mist rising from the stream flowing into river. And you can see through the fog now yellows and oranges as day breaks and he makes his way past the final clearing into an open space and a large plateau on top of which sits and you you said your pathfinders are camping at camp right now it'd be nothing like that camp it would be so much larger anybody here ever go to one of the pathfinder camperies how many how many people were at the pathfinder camperie you attended more than 30,000, it would be easily three to four times that size encampment on the top of this plateau. Over 100,000 Israelites were camped. They've been here for weeks, about six weeks. I don't know how long you camp, but it doesn't take us long to start structuring and organizing. And here's the Illinois Conference, and here's Downers Grove, and here, I don't know if they have street signs at this point, if it's all laid out in kind of square angles or what, but they've been there long enough by now to be fairly organized, and he makes his way along this trail, whether he's come here before or not is unclear, but he makes his way finally, whether questions are asked or just street signs observed, to the tents that are from his conference, that are from his city that are from his family and there are his brothers at about breakfast time i don't know if you've had a good trip or how about this i don't know if you've woken from sleep in a tent in the woods to the smell of a fire and breakfast being cooked it's kind of a little bit of a mean time to bring that up but I'm imagining he arrives there, and they, there's something sizzling on the fire. There are probably you know, eggs and clearly some sort of prosage or uh, you know, some sort of uh, stripples. <clears throat> I don't know what kinds of bread they might have, but it's that time, and he is exhausted a little bit by his trip, and he plunks down, maybe after having unloaded the donkey's of the cheese and the, the water and breads and different things that he has brought for provisions for his brothers. And he plunks down there by the fire and they feed him and he eats and about that time it happens. Don't know exactly the right way to describe this. I guess my best shot at it is to tell you about the voice. About that time it happens, echoing across a canyon just below the plateau top on which they are camped and back and forth, bouncing across the walls until it reaches their tents, because every day, every morning, this is what would happen, the voice. And you would see in his brother's eyes the cringing, kind of the resentment, maybe a little bit of embarrassment, but they maybe sit a little more deeply in their camp chairs and try to ignore the voice as it begins. Good morning. Good morning, ladies. If you find your way in your Bible to 1 Samuel, <coughs> nearly hurt my throat there. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 10 says, Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. You know the story. And in fact, what had happened here is, encamped on one plateau, separated by a ravine, and then another plateau on this side would be the Israelites in their warring readiness, over 100,000, camped there for six weeks because on the other side of that 
that valley floor and up to that plateau where about 100,000 Philistines, equal-sized armies at a stalemate, deciding not to just attack and obliterate each other. Instead, the Philistines, who have giants who live among them, huge people, send out their champion fighter. It's not just that he's big. It's that this is what he does. And the giant walks to the valley floor on just one side of that stream, the Philistine side, and says, all right, who's it going to be? Throw down the gauntlet. This is the way it's going to go. You send out your giant. Winner take all. Winner takes the other side in slavery. How about it? Send your man. Send your Israelite man daily coming out. Here we are. I am ready. Big telephone pole spear. Huge helmet on his head. Gruff. Not, I'm thinking not one of the top ten most beautiful people on the planet. More fierce than handsome as Goliath bellows forth again. Send your man. What are there no men in Israel? Good morning, ladies. Starts again this particular day as David sits in the camp chair with the eggs and the stripples. And his brothers sink deeper into the chair. He knows them. He knows it's a little odd that his brother might say, I tell you what, I'll clean up. Why don't you, uh, you all go down? I'll straighten the beds and kind of tidy up around here. The Bible says, that they then gathered themselves to go off to war and marched down to the valley floor with a battle cry. And it makes me think, okay, so here you have all these frightened Israelites making their way down in front of the giant who is bellowing out this challenge. You know, okay. And they issue the battle cry. Is there anything quite so pathetic as the battle cry of a group of people who don't want to fight? You will notice that we will dip back and forth between this story of Scripture and us, for whom it is a metaphor. Is there anything quite so pathetic as the battle cry of an army that doesn't want to go to war? And I wonder about the giant in our land, that which seems so insurmountable, And the impression we are making in the soil around us. Is it enough? Does our battle cry frighten anyone? Or is it just our best attempt to try to keep acting like an army? There they stand, quaking. The Bible says that as he would shout, they would go out to their battle positions, shouting the war cry. And when the Israelites, as verse 24, when the Israelites saw the man, saw the man, just saw the man. Every morning they're hearing his voice. When they saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. <laughs> there they are. They've shouted their battle cry and they come out and they're all, at 100,000. And he comes out and whew, they are scattering. 
And David, young David, teenage David, shorter than the others, David, not fully developed quite yet, David, not actually mature enough, enough of a man to go to war yet, David, David, the one we would give a junior position to, let's give you the bread and the cheese. You can be the water boy. Take that to the battlefront. That David, as he watches all that is going on, can't help himself, but begins to ask this guy who keeps coming out to defy Israel and our God, what is happening? Why is no one stepping up to fight? And maybe he thinks to himself, oh, oh, wait. Probably it'd be wise, because if you wait, this, okay, I see it. I see, the, I see the wisdom. If you wait just long enough, maybe the king will offer a reward. It's don't rush in, kind of leverage the moment, right? And as he suggests this to those around him, he overhears somebody say, well, actually, there is, there is a reward that has been, that has been offered. What is it? You hear it there in verse 25 in the second half. Well, the king, the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. Okay, wait a minute. Let's review. So he'll give great wealth. Let's just say wagon loads of cash, maybe deeds of land and that sort of thing. Gold bricks, whatever, fits on the wagon. That's the start of it. Second of all, And you need to understand that this is read by me as a father of two young ladies, one who is married and one who is not, so I guess it would be you, Alyssa, that would be offered. Huh? Yeah, I'm not not sure about this part. But the king will give his daughter in marriage and exempt you and your whole family from taxes. Just thinking about this as we're driving along. Are tolls taxes? It seems like it ought to be so. It seems like I should, if, if in fact I would have in my wallet then a card that would just say, it would just have my face and the big word tax exempt, that phrase, to tax exempt. And so I would get to the, what is your sales tax here? 8%. You guys don't even seem like you know. Well, that must mean it's not that bad. Uh, I know there are parts of Chicago that in fact it can be as high as 12, 10. No? Okay, I don't know. The outskirts. Well, so in, in any case, there you are with your, gro- with, well, I guess groceries probably aren't taxed, but with your goods that are about to be taxed, and you just pull out the card. <laughs> I'm sorry. No. April 15, you just have signs in your yard, right? Anybody with the last name Ferguson. You know, people would be wanting to be in your family. And David looks around, he says, okay, so I get it. There is a reward. It's a pretty sizable reward. It's a crazy kind of reward. Well, where, what's, where is the per, who's what's happening? He keeps calling out like we've got no one. and Obviously, we must have someone. I don't know if it's at this moment that it dawns on David that Israel has a giant. Right? Does Israel have a giant? The Bible says there's one Israelite that's head and shoulders taller than his countrymen. Who's that? Saul. Isn't it interesting that the only place you find the leader of the Israelite nation in this story, and in fact, even after victory, there's only one place you ever see him. It's in his office, in his tent. It makes me wonder about us. Sometimes it feels like we love staying in home base. 
in our committees. I can, by the way, I can say stuff and drive home and leave you here with it, right? <laughs> and it doesn't affect me nearly so much as it might you. But a pastor who sits in his church office, a church who only ever meets inside their own sanctuary and wonders why the world around doesn't seem to know anything about us. The only place you'll find Saul in this story is in his tent. I don't know exactly what he's doing, but I have this sense, I have my imagination suggests that he is actually making selections of the things that might go well in slavery. And he's packed himself a good slave trunk. I don't know for sure, and in fact, somebody might want to bring up to him, usually a person in your position doesn't make it as a slave. Usually you become a part of the signage on a post somewhere. So amazing, isn't it, that he's not ready to join the battle? Especially when in the future here, he's about to let somebody very unpredictable and go ahead and attack the giant. David decides, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's because they're having, oh, I get it, so we probably have 20, 50 people who are ready to, you know, out of 100,000 that are ready to go. Let's do this then. Maybe they're having tryouts. Where are the tryouts? Can I go watch the tryouts? No, uh-uh, no, we're just, we're just coming out daily, battle cry, down to the front, then we see what we've been hearing, and we run. That's our, that's our, that's our game plan. Cardio, we're getting a good cardio in. And David can't believe it. He keeps asking, why is no one standing up for God and Israel? And finally, and I don't know how many times I had read this story and missed this. Finally, in verse 28, you find something very interesting happens with his oldest brother, Eliab. Eliab, a great name if you're shopping for boys' names that are unused. Uh, if you're about to have a child, Eliab is one to keep in mind. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here, and with whom? And right in about there, I figure he probably throws in his nickname for his younger brother. With whom, Davy? With whom did you leave those few little sheep in the desert? You know, you do have a task to do. We gave you a little something to do on the side. I know what's going on here. I know your heart. I know you're prideful. I know you just can't want to come and watch. You probably want to get away from the duties that you actually do have. I understand what's happening here. Here's a fascinating truth, and it's the first little breakout moment that I would talk about if I were thinking about this story as a recipe for us to be young again. And that is this. First, if we wish to be young in spirit, young in age, young as a movement, here's one of the things we probably need to brace ourselves for. The young, whether they are just new to us, even though older, or whether they are actually chronologically young, the young have lots and lots and lots of questions. Have you noticed this? A lot of questions, and they are pesky questions, and they are not necessarily just the questions that we have ready answers for. Some of them are questions that bother us and are difficult and trying, and we don't have good answers to. And they can be about subjects that are uncomfortable. I don't know if you've noticed it. 
but the young have questions and they don't really uh, respond well to just shutting up about them. And there is the flip side portion of this in our metaphor story, and that is that there are always Eliabs in every group of us. So the young have questions. If we want to be young, we need to be a place that fosters and welcomes questions. Do you know that the average 20-year-old in the world today thinks church is the last place that would welcome their questions? Somehow we have given off a vibe or or we've actually spoken it. Don't ask that question here. That's not a good question. I had a young friend of mine tell me at the end of a summer camp session where I was just so covetous of this kid's involvement in what God was doing because of how brilliant and how soft-hearted this young man was, creative genius. We're having this conversation. He tells me, I just don't think I'm going to go back to church. Not, not the ones I'm, I just don't think. Really? Why is that? And as... An explanation for why he didn't think he would be going back to church. He told me the story of one of the last times he was at his home church, and he was after the church service, they were having a fellowship meal, and he was gathered with some other individuals that was his exact same age, and they were talking about a variety of things that concerned them, that bothered them, that they had questions about, and he voiced his question, and it wasn't disrespectful. It didn't use bad language, but it was a challenging, pesky, difficult question in a territory that's out there on the edge of what we are terribly happy to talk about. And he felt a hand on his shoulder, turned around and saw one of the more established members of this particular church as they even kindly looked down at him and said, look, you need to be careful about that question. You need to be careful about asking those kinds of questions. Those are dangerous questions. And what that person stopped short of actually saying but communicated clearly is don't talk about that here. In every group of us, and maybe even every one of us at one time or another, Eliab comes out. I know what's going on here. You don't have, you don't have a righteous approach to this. I know what's going on. Look, we gave you something to do. With whom did you leave those little sheepies? Don't be asking the grown-up questions. Those are challenging questions. Shh. Just know this. If we're going to be young again... The young ask questions. And those of us who want to be young again better better maybe step up and say, we also know there are going to be Eliabs, and we will step up and step out and form a barrier and try to help protect that this could be a place that welcomes and fosters questions, the questioning hearts. Do you know it isn't so important that we're even offering up answers most of the time? but that we are allowing an environment that can converse and discuss what's really on the hearts and minds of those who have questions. Isn't it interesting that God seems far less panicked than we? He will let us even be wrong about our theology at times. If you cannot, if you, The story of Job is fascinating because God would say, watch him. And yet Job's out there spitting out all kinds of theological imperfections about what he thinks is going on, and God says, that's my guy. Because there's something more important at the heart of who Job is than his theological contribution to the conversation. 
And maybe that's true here, too, that we could create the kind of openness of atmosphere that we could be theologically careful and yet dialogically open. Well, by the way, if you're young and you're in this room, I want to challenge you with something else because, yes, those of us that are older need to hear, we, we, should, we should create this kind of open environment. But I want to say to the, the young that's, that are in the room, Please, would you listen to this story? Would you observe this story? Because here's what essentially happens in the story. David is asking the questions, asking the questions. Why is no one confronting the giant? Finally, Eliab steps up and says, I know your heart. And apparently David listens. Is there anybody else who can tell me? Why are we not attacking the giant? He does not stop asking his questions. If you... If you play out the story, he ends up in the tent of the king with this pesky question. Because he keeps asking, keeps asking, keeps asking, and I know way too many of those who are young who find all kinds of cop-out reasons to stop asking their questions. Don't, please, embody the actions of David. We will try to insulate against Eliab and welcome the questions, but stay with us. Ask them here, please. Well, doesn't take long, apparently. I don't know the exact structure of the military of the Hebrews here. I don't know if it is that he's talking with the privates and they get so tired of him that sooner or later a sergeant steps in who, ah, I don't know, let's send you to the captain. How about, I don't know how this works this way, but he ends up in the tent of the king. That's rarely going to be the way that works, is it? You just keep chattering, keep chattering, and next thing you know, okay, let's send you to the president. But there he is, ushered into the tent of the king, and David walks in, and he has an idea. David's plan you can find in verse 37. Actually, verse 32, his first words as he walks into the tent. Let no one lose heart on account of this giant. Can you hear his voice? Possibly still dealing with the voice change? Let no one lose heart. Let me go that again. Let no one lose heart, for I am here. <laughs> and I will attack the giant. Woohoo! And I gotta figure out there are probably some people in the tent there that are just doing one of these numbers. Oh. Oh, that is so precious. Someday when you're older, you'll understand how cute that is. No, 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 David says. No, 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 I've got a plan. I'm not just coming in here just wildly. Verse 37. For the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and delivered me from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He shares the story. I've been keeping charge of sheep. That's my qualifications. I've been keeping charge of sheep. And in fact, I've got a lot of time on my hands. And frankly, there's a, well, so my brother's sandal kind of broke. And I took that and I made this thing. And so I'm, and, So I have a lot of time to kind of practice. Well, I was attacked by a bear. I was attacked by a lion. So that's my... So see? Now there's all kinds of fighting issues and jargon and all kinds of things that somebody could object to this whole plan with, but it is kind of adorable on some level. In fact, try this out the next time you have an idea that you'd like to put past the church board. It's David's approach. Think this through. This is David's approach. Look, so I'm going to go out there, 
and <clears throat> I'm going to attack the giant. And the Lord will deliver me from him and his hands, like he delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. Right, right. So picture it. I mean, really, you've got to imagine this now. I'm going to attack him, and he will have me in his hands. And he'll be about to squish me like a small bug. And then God will deliver me. <laughs> Try that in the next board meeting. Okay, so I have this idea for ministry, and um, no, no, I don't have, have any of the money, actually. Um, and in fact, I don't, well, no, you're right. I've, I've run this past some of the other members, and nobody else seems to want to be involved, but that's okay. So what, in fact, here's my plan. We're gonna, I'm just going to announce it. <laughs> we're going we're to just announce it, we're going to launch it, and we're going to run out there, and it is going to look like abject failure. And then God is going to step in and rescue it with success. Let's vote. That's David's plan. This is his whole approach. Tell you what, I'm going to go out there. It's going to look, I know how it's going to look. It's going to look like me against the bear. It's going to look like me against the lion. Me against the, and, and it's going to be, but God's going to step in and rescue how naive. How cute. It reminds me of a, a commercial I saw many, many years ago. I believe it was for the N- NAACP College Fund. In fact, the way the, the commercial starts is a young black man sitting at a table. It's clearly his son, his wife, kind of standing at the edge. He's trying to explain to his son that his son cannot go, a senior in high school apparently, his son cannot go to college because something has happened to the family finances and they can't send him to college. Little boy around the corner, overhearing, eavesdropping, listening, apparently not involved or invited in the conversation, but he wants to be. And he hears this tale of well, his brother isn't going to be able to go to college. And you see the look on his face, and then it lights up. You can see on his face, he's got a plan. He turns and rushes up some stairs into a room, clearly his bedroom, grabs a desk chair over to the closet, up into the closet he reaches at the top shelf, grabs something that he needs to carry with two hands as he makes his way down the steps into the kitchen, and he splashes down and breaks Onto the table, his piggy bank and little coins go scattering across the dining room table as he says to his brother, now you can go. Yeah, it's so cute. And David splashes his piggy bank on the table and says, do not fear, for I will fight the giant. Possibly one of the more amazing things in this story is that Saul says, okay, let's do it. You might suppose, and it's possible because we we're not told, you might suppose that it is that he believes here is a young man who has the hand of God on him and God will miraculously rescue us. You might suppose that. If you did suppose that, I'm expecting you would hear more about Saul being somewhere near the river when he attacks the giant. I don't personally think that's what Saul thought. I think he thought, eh, we're going to lose this anyway. Why not send a kid? Maybe then they won't kill me. 
when it comes time to turn myself in as a slave. Saul calls for his armor. Remember Saul's description? Head and shoulders taller than all the rest. David's description? He's not old enough to come to battle. I'm not certain about how much of a size differentiation there is, but I know there's some. They start to pack and load Saul's armor onto David, and now David has like a breastplate. He's looking out an armhole, and he's kind of wobbling around the tent, and the the armor bearer is just trying to keep him from taking the whole thing down. And David, David is completely uncomfortable. This is the wrong size stuff. And by the way, is this not a truth about us? We hold power. We hold decision-making. It's going to be about us and some others who have never had the opportunity, never had the chance. Maybe they seem naive to us. Maybe they are talking about attacking a giant and God somehow miraculously coming in. But we have processes and we have policies and we have things that we do. And by the way, somebody tried something that seems remarkably close to that in 64 and we all know how that went. But then finally we get desperate enough and we decide we're going to give some inexperienced somebody, some young person, some something, we're going to give them a chance. And what is our first instinct? Our first instinct is to call for our armor and put our armor on that person. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so we do. We need somebody who's going to lead music. But here's, let me tell you how you lead music and what music that will be. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, we need a Sabbath school superintendent. And so let me show you exactly how that gets done. And Saul puts his armor onto David, and two terrible things happen when we put our armor on somebody else. First of all, the Bible says that when we respond to God and Jesus Christ, the Spirit comes upon us, and he equips us and gives us our own armor. And so for David to wear Saul's armor, he has to keep from wearing his own that God gave him. Mistake and problem number one is when we put, take our armor, when we take the ways we would do things and force them onto others. I'm not talking about morality or sound theological interests, but so, isn't it true, so much of what we spend our time with has to do with the way I do it. So much of our, so many of our arguments do not have theological grounding. They're more grounded in taste and culture. Two terrible things happen in this moment that I put my armor onto this kid over here. First of all, I deny God's armor that he has given that person. And the other thing is, now I'm not wearing my armor either. David has a great response to this. He, he uh, in verse 38, Saul dresses David in his own tunic, and he put a coat of armor on him. And again, don't let it escape you. This means Saul has no intention of fighting this day. David fastens the sword over his tunic and all this stuff. Finally, second half of verse 39, he says, I cannot go in these because I am not used to them. <laughs> Think about that again. Visualize. Here he is. He's peeking through the armhole of a big coat of armor, you know, a chest piece here. Uh, yeah, so seriously, if I had just a little bit more time to practice, I think this would be perfect, but I, uh, I haven't, so uh, I can't go in these. 
And by the way, he says, by the way, did you not hear my plan? My plan is that I am going to go out there and attack the giant, and and he's going to have me in his hands. And it's all going to be lost. It won't matter. It just would mean that the container in which my body would be encased would be metal. It doesn't matter what I go in because I'm going in the name of God who is going to rescue me. So I have this, it's a, well, it's for the sheep. I have this stick and the sandal I was talking about that, that I made into a, calling it a sling. That's what I've got. That's what I'm going with. And David leaves the tent and marches down to the creek bed and picks out five smooth stones. You remember it, of course. Five smooth stones. Why five stones? Some suggest it's because David knows that Goliath has four brothers, also giants. And he's not all that clear on how many God's going to want to take down today by sling. That he's going to have enough rocks for them all. And I don't know if he's ankle deep in the water when the giant first notices him. Maybe the Israelites noticed him first and no one can quite get out there fast enough to stop what it is that is ludicrous in front of them that is happening. But there he is calling out, saying, I come to you in the name of the Most High God whom you defy. What? It's happening. And by the time Goliath can notice him, David is like whizzing something around in the air. And he's, first of all, he's a little ticked off at what's happening because he feels insulted. What do you think this is? You're going to poke and prod at me like I am some dog that you will play around with some gay? You'll send a child for a man's battle? You think that's funny? And then it turns kind of humorous to him. Okay, send him. Yeah, send him. That'll be fine. You'll get him back all right. It'll be in parts and pieces. Don't think I haven't done it before. And this creates a belly laugh and maybe the rocking back of a helmet. And there is a whirr in the air as a rock lets loose from a sling, former sandal. And there is a thud. As rock meets flesh... I don't know how you see it. I kind of see a moment frozen in time and a little bit of wobbling as a giant goes down to his knees with a thud and falls backwards into the dust. And then that part happens that we don't sing about. And one little stone went into the air and the giant came tumbling down. And David raced across the stream, jumped up on the giant's chest with his sword, cut off his head, and held it up. (laughs) But let it be known in the story in Scripture, the giant is not knocked out. The giant is not sleeping. The giant is not coming back. The giant isn't just down for a time, didn't kind of just lose this one. The giant is conquered, is dead. And then the miracle happens. Because what you've seen, if you watch in the story, what you notice is, encamped on this plateau for over six weeks, 100,000 of God's people more concerned about you know, the new fellowship tent that they're putting up and whether there can be candles because it'll drip wax on the new carpet we put in there. Not really doing battle with anyone, just having little committees and things and conversations and not moving anywhere, and they're at a stalemate for six weeks. They're 
scared. Every time the giant steps up, they run for the trees. And then a little boy steps forward, throws a rock. A giant goes down, and then guess what happens? The Bible says that the Israelites charge. 100,000 petrified, paralyzed warriors now race across the stream, attack the Philistines, and chase them, fighting all the way to the gates of Philistia, which are 13 miles from that valley, and then run back to loot their tents, the 13 more miles roughly counting. By my math, that's about a marathon. And because of the actions of one who doesn't seem to know what can't be done... There's a great Chinese proverb. The one who says it can't be done should not interrupt the one who's doing it. Maybe we need a little naivety around here. A young lady, a young man who doesn't know what we've tried so many times and failed at, who is willing to step up in the name of the Almighty God and attack there's a quote by Charles Spurgeon. If you haven't read or never read a Spurgeon, you should, you should check into this guy. Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon said, one person says, I will do what I can. Any fool can do that. The Christian says, I will try what I cannot do and accomplishes it. For wasn't it Christ who said that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could speak to a tree and it would walk into a lake. And if you recall, in that passage of the mustard seed in Luke chapter 17, it starts out by the disciples saying, Jesus, give us more faith. And Jesus responds and says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that's the kind of response that is equivalent to this. Could you please give us more faith? Well, so let me think of the smallest amount of faith a person could possibly have. You know, it's not that you need more faith, it's that you need to act on whatever faith you have. Because if you have faith the kind of size that I could be holding it right here and you would not be able to tell, even if I were right in front of you, you wouldn't be able to tell. Unless you had it in your hand, you kind of felt a little bit of grit there, then you could tell. If you have faith of that size, if you'd exercise it, you can move mountains, you can... Maybe it is that we could stop praying for more faith. And start inviting God to act out the faith that we have. To step up and move. And maybe what we need more than anything else is to start turning over power to the least among us. To invite the youngest who have an interest in exercising their faith to do so. To not have that person newly baptized sit on the bench for a while and get acclimated. What that means is... I mean, really, what does it mean to be acclimated if we're not attacking the giant so much? Maybe a little naivety, maybe a little bit of innocence, and maybe a little wide-eyed wonder is what we need to be young again and that there could be a time, and that time be now, that we could soar on wings like eagles, that God has a plan, that we be a movement in his name. It's okay. We've been on the plateau. And the giant, it seems terrifying. But there is a way. There is a way forward. How much better this story could have been if what you would have heard about 
was a young boy with the whirring of a sling at a creek bed, and standing beside him was the king of the Israelites. How much better a story would it have been if two voices had shouted, We come in the name of the Almighty God whom you defy this day. There is room in this story not just for the young person to act, but for those of us who are older to be young again and to run and not grow weary, to be marathon runners in God's behalf. And by the way, well, this last story as we end, I, uh, in my family, my household, um, growing up, it was kind of uh, a statement of manhood to be able to open jars. At least that was my perception as the youngest of the men in my family. Uh, My father, big, huge hands. In fact, he's the shortest of his brothers at 6'1", but he would claim all of that went to his hands and his feet. He's got big, bare paws. And so my petite mother might be struggling with a pickle jar and turn to my father and say, Dwayne, could you open this jar? And my father would say, why, certainly. There you go. He didn't talk like that, but it just, you know. Oh, one particular day, my father wasn't around at just the right moment. My brother, two and a half years older than me, much bigger than me, was there to respond as my mother says, Lowell, could you open this jar? Why, yes, mother. There you go. I don't know why my brother and my father need to sound like Antonio Banderas, but it works. And then the day came. My father wasn't there for some reason. Maybe he was out working. My brother wasn't attentive, at least. And my mother was struggling with the pickle jar, and it's time to have that open. And I'm just ready. I'm waiting. And she turned, well, Dave, can you try to open this jar? Why, yes, mother. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't wasn't my opening hand. <laughs> I couldn't get it open. And you start to think about options and things that you've watched and seen. There's that little blue kind of rubber doily thing that apparently is for this purpose. And then you run hot water over the lid, and there's a knife that you're starting to, right? I mean, all the things that you've watched ever happen, you're trying. And finally, begrudgingly, you set the jar down. And because I had this thought, my father's not around. There's that whole wall of tools, which are forbidden. Uh, but he's not here to open the pickle jar, nor to keep me from getting something to open the pickle jar. And I saw something with a strap and an arm. I think this would work. And so down the steps into the garage in the basement, and and there it was. I found it, I grabbed it, and I decided this is a noble and righteous cause. He would surely say yes. And so I went then to go up the steps, and as I put my first footfall on that bottom step, looking up, I see at the top of the stairs my little sister holding a pickle as she's eating it. Well, every full-grown man in the room knows what the response is that you have to give to that. Yeah. I loosened it. (laughs) Hey, let's not hang back. Let's give opportunity for even the most naive among us to act now, not once they become jaded and older. And Jesus says he is coming. Maybe if he comes during our lifetimes, we're fine. I mean, we could always say we loosened it. 
Let's go together. Let's fly on the wings of eagles. Let's be young. Again, you and I have the opportunity to create a culture that young people would want to be a part of. That they would know it is not a holding pattern until they get to be my age, but it is a launch pad for today. And if that happens, hold on for dear life. In fact, get up and get some running shoes on because it's time to fight. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you very much for your love for us and for this congregation in this city that has so much need. Would you grant us the privilege of not merely hearing clearly the voice of the giant taunting? Would you allow us to see what could be when faith is acted upon? And Lord, we beg of you, send us or rise up, raise up among us our own young people. We will give them opportunity. We will give them courage. We will walk beside them and we will let them fight in their own armor and do things the way they most naturally would pursue you. And you, we give you full permission and in fact we beg it of you. You, please make us young again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.